Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And at the conclusion of the message last week, I mentioned that we needed to spend more time on the matter of repentance. And I hope to do that today. And why? It's because, as I mentioned last week and a moment or two earlier here, too often we evangelicals get so caught up in trying to get people to simply say the sinner's prayer that we fail to tell them some of the most essential parts of the gospel. The most essential part of the gospel is that we, that you, that I, each one of us, truly is a sinner in need of a Savior. And you and I have no ability in and of ourselves to ever begin to deal with the matter of sin. That sin that lives and abides within us. Folks, sin must be dealt with on a whole other level through an intimate transaction and agreement between our broken and contrite heart and the very person of the Spirit of Christ. And for us, it must begin as the Holy Spirit reaches into our hearts and produces within us a strong and compelling unction convicting us about the sin that lives and lurks within our souls, causing us to want to turn from our wicked ways and to repent for the sin that's corrupting our souls. Jesus said it best in His words in John chapter 16. He said, When I go away, I will send a helper to you, the Holy Spirit. And when He comes, He will convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, those words that I read just a few moments ago, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow produces death. In Psalm 51, the Lord tells us through the words of King David as he repented for his sins. There David said, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it. And you are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You know, sadly, folks, it seems that too often those who have wronged someone else, they're reluctant even to say the simple words, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They instead prefer to try to make up for their offense by being extra nice or giving gifts or favors. But folks, that kind of behavior is not God's desired remedies for sin. As these words of Psalm 51 tell us, God's acceptable remedy is repentance. It's repentance. And it must begin with a broken and a contrite heart and then followed by those words like, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. From our scripture text for today, we know that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. And he knew exactly what it took to wipe away the effects of our sin. And here, as he went out on his ministry in this call of God to the people, we can almost hear those demanding words crying out from John's lips, Repent, 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord Jesus had already come to the earth. And when he came to the earth, the kingdom of God came with him. It has been here since that day, and it is among us now. And so John would cry out, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand right here in amongst us. And folks, simply put, sin is so much more of a barrier between us and our God than we could ever imagine. We have only to consider that God the Father sent His dearly beloved Son to suffer and to die, to pay the debt that our sin, that your sin, that my sin deserves to be able to see that in God's eyes sin is wrong beyond measure. And that it has to be removed from our being so completely, so completely that no vestige of sin can ever be seen in us for all eternity. With that being said, let's look at these words of the Scripture beginning in verse 2 of Luke chapter 3. Verse 2, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. As we begin to consider these precious truths this morning, bear with me for a moment if you will. And let me again lay down some of the foundational truths that we've been studying over the past few weeks. Truths that have led up to this moment in the life of this very special man, John the Baptist. First, let me remind us again that John the Baptist was just an ordinary man. Yes, equipped by God, but he was just an ordinary man, much like you and me. And why is that important to establish? It's because we have this tendency to attach more significance to men than should ever take place. At one point in his ministry, that very thing took place with John and his disciples. His disciples would listen to this message and witness his personality, such a powerful personality, that some of them began to wonder if John might be more than just a prophet, that he might actually be the Messiah. But John quickly answered them and clearly, emphatically told them that he was not the Messiah. That he was nothing more than a friend. That he was not even fit to untie the shoelaces of the Messiah. Too many of our popular evangelists today have trouble with that form of pride. They enjoy being, as the song says, the lead singer in the band. They like their name being mentioned and you see their names prominently posted on their websites. But John made sure that his disciples knew that he was not the Messiah. And John's words should serve to help you and me to know and to remember and to never, never place common men on a pedestal. 
no matter how powerful, how persuasive their personalities might be. But with that being said, John does serve as an encouraging testimony to us that yes, God can take an ordinary man, a man like me, a man or a woman like you, and can set us apart for a very special purpose in life. God did not just handpick John the Baptist out of a group of men. God actually wove John the Baptist together in his mother's womb, weaving together his heart and his soul and his mind and his spirit. His DNA fitted him for this one purpose, to be set apart as an emissary. An emissary, a forerunner who would go out ahead of the soon coming Messiah. Jesus would follow right along behind John. But John was preparing the way for him to make straight his paths in the wilderness, to soften the soil within men's souls so that they could believe, so that they could receive the salvation message that Jesus would bring to them. That was John's job. And folks, I must tell you that I rejoice when I'm able to clearly see that God Himself transcends many generations of time. He did that with John the Baptist, prophesying about John 700 years before John was born. And then to see in the day of John the Baptist, God reaching His hand in to the time and circumstances of John's life and actually making all of God's plans and purposes come to fruition. God had planned this and He had prophesied it through the prophet Isaiah. And now here He was bringing it into being. Folks, there are so many well-meaning people today who insist that all these things that we read here in the Scriptures, especially these things like this taking place in John's life, they were just part of John's free will response to God's calling. But that was not so. John the Baptist was clearly being guided and directed by the very hand of God. He was a vessel in the potter's hand. A useful instrument chosen and molded into shape for noble purposes by the great potter who created him. And John's mission was to go out ahead of the Lord Jesus and to prepare the ground in which Jesus would then sow his seeds of salvation and of righteousness. And God had equipped John with a very, very special implement. An implement by which he would accomplish his task. And that was a strong and compelling call to repentance. That was the message that would soften the ground that Jesus would sow the seeds of salvation in. The nature of sin within our souls is so strong and so pervasive and so normal, so normal to the common activities of our life that our souls become hardened to it. Sinful behaviors and, and habits are so embedded within our personalities that most of them we don't even recognize that they're there. And even when we do see their presence, we're more apt to make some foolish excuse for them rather than actually doing something about those sinful behaviors and habits. But that would be the special ministry that God had called and equipped John the Baptist to carry out. He was to go ahead of the Lord Jesus and to begin to upturn the ground to break through that hardened, sinful surface of men's souls 
And he would do it. He would do it with the simple words of a call to repentance. Think with me for a moment about that. What could there have been present within the simple words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? What could be within those simple words that could do such powerful work within men and women's souls? And it did. It did. I have no doubt that as John spoke those words, that it was first the almighty power of the Holy Spirit. And within those words, there was a special mixture of love and of grace and of conviction and of fear and dread of consequences. They were all bundled together. And all of them together caused men and women to turn then and to cry out for forgiveness for their sins. You know, in these days of the New Testament church, these days of grace, we call them, we often confuse ourselves into thinking that such things as the law and fear of the Lord, they're outdated. They're not part of grace. But folks, listen, that is not so. That is not so. These truths are for all generations. And these scriptures tell us clearly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why do people not know when they're sinning? It's because they don't have this fear of the Lord and the wisdom that it brings. Folks, fear of the Lord is an effective instrument when used in the right way. And it will, it will bring men and women to Christ. And again, I have no doubt that fear was a strong and persuasive part of John's message that penetrated the hardened surfaces of men and women's souls and caused them to turn their hearts to repentance. When I read words such as this about repentance, I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews chapter 4. These words beginning in verse 12. The Word of God is living and powerful. The Word of God is living and powerful. And it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, able to discern the thoughts and the intents of our hearts and minds. And he says there, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him, the Lord Jesus, to whom we must give an account. Going into a dark room, no one else is watching as you're looking at those programs on your computer the pornography, whatever it might be. Remember these words. There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Folks, we don't hide anything from God. We don't hide anything from God. God's words, they have powerful life residing within them, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that power can reach into each of our souls, pierce deeply within Dividing the soul and the spirit. We can discern the thoughts and the intents of our hearts and minds. God's words, John's special powerful instrument as he called out for all of those people in front of him there to examine themselves, to see the sin that prevailed in their lives and to repent and to turn from them. And that's what he's saying to us today within these words. And John's call to repentance took these people beyond just being sorry for the way that they behaved and the way that they cheated or perhaps mistreated other people. John's call to repentance reminded them that their sins, 
their sins were against God. And that with God, consequences are eternal. Our sin is always first against God. And His consequences are eternal. Folks, I confess to you that in my own life, I am much more often concerned about the temporal and immediate consequences of my sin. If I go over the speed limit, will a policeman write me a ticket? If I cheat on my taxes, will IRS catch me doing it? Or if I look at another woman with my wife seeing me do it and her being brokenhearted, those kinds of temporal responses. Yes, we do need to be aware that our sinful behavior can hurt us and can hurt other people, but that is only a very small effect of sin. Much more than that, sin is a violation against God Himself. Sin is a personal offense against the very person and character of God. And to personally violate the person of God brings eternal consequences. God is holy, and in His holiness, He cannot allow any form of sin to exist in His presence. Neither past sins, nor present sins, nor future sins. And that leaves you and me, and every other person, with a very serious problem. With a very serious problem. Because we are by nature sinners. And if we carry even one of our sins with us throughout our day, listen, if we carry even one of our sins with us throughout our day, God cannot fellowship with us. He is holy. And listen, if we carry our sin on before the judgment seat of God, then we will surely perish. We will surely perish eternally. We cannot allow our sin to go before the judgment seat of God. David in his sin with Bathsheba is one of the clearest examples of sinfulness and of the need for godly repentance. Yes, David had hurt many people with his sins. He had corrupted his own soul. He violated another man's wife. He plotted sin and then plotted the murder of his very good friend Uriah. You might recall Uriah was not just a next door neighbor. Uriah was one of his David's mighty men that had ridden with David during his most difficult times as Saul would chase after him and try to kill him. But David still plotted the murder and had it carried out of his dear friend Uriah. He involved so many other people within his conspiracy. And his sins went on and on. But when the Holy Spirit convicted David of his sin, David came to understand what his offenses were truly all about. And thankfully, David responded well. He took the right path of repentance. I want to read for us Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is a psalm that I would like for each of you to mark in your Bible. And I would like for you to read it often. Especially when you know that you have sin within your life. And let me assure you, you do. God breathed these words into the mouth of King David. That's what Scripture tells us. These are all God-breathed words. He breathed these words into David's mouth. And then David spoke them out for us. Listen to these words of Psalm 51. David knows now that he is so wrong. 
And he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And listen to these words. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation up and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. David had what could be described there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that we read earlier as godly sorrow. Listen to those words again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. David was not just sorry that he got caught or sorry that he would suffer consequences, and he did. He suffered consequences for his sin. David was truly sorry that he had violated the very person of God. So let me ask you, how do you deal with this matter of sin? Is it a private matter that you keep to yourself? Do you ever think that if no one else knows that I've sinned, then I'll be okay? When you find yourself caught up in a lie, or in gossip, or in slander, or caught up in cheating on a business matter, perhaps letting vulgar, profane thoughts linger in your mind. What is your response? What is your response? Do you ever stop to realize, as I mentioned a moment ago, and as David did, that God really does know every thought that is in your mind long before it comes to your lips? and long before you actually do a vile or a vulgar thing. He tells us that, by the way, in Psalm 139. He says, before a word is on your tongue, the Lord knows it. He knows our thoughts from afar. Folks, listen. God loves you and me as His dearly beloved children. And He does sympathize with our weaknesses. But listen, 
please understand that he cannot tolerate the sin that foments and erupts out of our souls. And his remedy, his remedy is for us to repent and to turn from our sin, to confess it to him and seek his forgiveness. That was John's message to the people of his day. And that is God's message to you and to me of our day. So then, before we pray, I'd like for us to bow our heads in silence for a few moments and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to our minds specific sins that we're harboring or holding on to within our hearts and minds. And then, please, please, do confess those sins to God and ask Him to forgive you for those sins and to lead you in ways of righteousness. Let's bow our heads quietly and silently and talk to God about it in our minds. And then I'll close this. These words of 2 Corinthians 7.10 again as we close. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Let's pray.